the so-called minor prophets, these 12 guys come fast and furious. You know, across 400 years, from 840 B.C., Obadiah at the earliest, all the way down to Malachi around 400 B.C. And you see, you begin to realize as you study through these minor prophets that God's major message was continually and constantly being given to His people. I mean, He was flooding Israel and Judah with the truth. People say, why doesn't God talk to us? He is, He does, He has. And with the, with the prophets here, we see that one after another. Now, one thing you're going to notice, Zephaniah repeats a lot of stuff. And it reminds me that the Lord has a method of teaching, and that is to get something in, and then to bring it back around and get it in again, and then bring it back around and get it in again. You will hear things, not a whole lot that's brand new if you've been studying through these prophets with us, and yet Zephaniah has a very specific take. We'll look at that this morning. Zephaniah chapter 1, I want to read a little bit to you, we'll pray and think this through. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom or Molech. You might know him by that name. And those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, He has consecrated His guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. I will punish on that day all who leap on the threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame, before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. 
And Lord, You lay out before us a heavy word this morning. I pray You'll give us grace to receive it. Understanding, Father, of the depth of Your heart in all of these things. Father, we pray for the wisdom of Your Spirit now, in Jesus' name. Amen. The first Sunday of September... The time the kids are going back to school and we're shifting, you know, kid, students are in mourning. <laughs> Parents are rejoicing. Huh? You're mourning too? Do, do we want to sit down and talk about this? Should we make an appointment to talk about this? Oh, Summer Jim's gone, that's right. Do you guys know about Summer Jim? That's not him, that's actually school year Jim standing back there. Summer Jim was here last Sunday. <laughs> Jim is a teacher at, at Oak Harbor High School. Uh, yeah, the whole thing changes. So yeah, Sanders in mourning. While many parents are singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> By this day in September of 1942, a young Jewish girl had already been two months in the Okterhaus. That is the secret annex. And Frank was in hiding. You all know the story. If you've never read... The Diary of Anne Frank, you need to read it. At that time, anti-Semitic hatred had been roaring its uh, ugly and ignorant head across all of Europe. It had been going on since about the mid-30s on into the 1940s. Jews like the Frank family began disappearing because they feared for their lives. Some fled, if they had the means to do so, to safer uh, havens. Some came to America and stayed with family here. Uh, Some were captured and herded into ghettos. Others just disappeared. Even before the onslaught of the Nazis taking the Jews away, putting them in the ghettos, taking them off to the concentration camps, the Nazi death camps, secret annexes were built all over Europe. They were built into basements and into attics and some into alleyways between homes and some into closet areas, hiding places. If you've ever read Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, another book you need to read. In fact, I would say every Christian should read The Diary of Anne Frank and Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. You need to at least have read those two. And I would throw in there uh, the book Night by Ellie Weisel. Anyway, to be aware of these things... But even for all of the hiding in secret, a third, you know this, one third of the world's Jewish population was systematically exterminated in those dark years. God's chosen people know how to go into hiding. And even when the rest of the world forgets, the Jewish people have a long and painful memory, which is why many are getting out of Europe again. Now, I know I've mentioned this recently, but a new article just out this last week in the New York Observer says the following. This year, New York has increasingly become home to one particular population seeking American status, Jewish Frenchmen. Marlon Kruskov, an attorney at New York's Gousseray Kaplan, specializes in helping Jews make the move from France to the States. Mr. Kruskov explained that this migration has increased massively since the beginning of 2014. Spurred on by the spate of anti-Semitic incidents which only worsened worsened with the war between Israel and Hamas. While last year he helped a handful of families with legal arrangements, today he's handling the arrangements of several dozen families, parents with children, looking to make the move from France to America. The families of Mr. Kruskop that he works with are predominantly well-off investors with an average net worth of 50 to 70 million But as any good lawyer does, Mr. Kruskoff begins his conversations with the families he represents by asking this question. Why this? Why now? Why do you want to be here and invest here? Unanimously, the answer is French anti-Semitism. I would not have thought that I would live to see the days when Jews began to flee Europe again. When the memory of this world is so thin, when we are so caught up in the immediate that we forget what happened just yesterday. By the way, outside of Israel itself, France has the second highest population of Jews in the world. That population right now stands at about 478,000, down about 100,000 over the last 10 years. 
the highest population of Jewish people, you may have guessed, is the United States. It's number one with 5.5 million Jews. Israel has just surpassed the United States in number of Jews located in one place. Israel has a population of 6.1 million Jewish people, but in France, the average annual attacks are now seven times higher than they were in the 1990s. That is anti-Semitic attacks taking place. It was Theodore Herzl, the father of modern Zionism, who believed and stated that without a Jewish homeland, and he said this back in the late 1800s, without a Jewish homeland, the Jews would disappear from the face of the earth within a generation. And so he fought for that. He died before it even came to be. But even with a Jewish homeland, the Bible is absolutely clear about this fact. God's people will again need a hiding place. And the nation of Israel is not it. They are going to need a place to be protected, a place to go, to flee, to be saved. Through Zephaniah, God promises Israel will have one. The book of Zephaniah is the last book on the shelf of the minor pre-exilic prophets. After this, we can skip down to the next shelf because the last three prophets coming in this row of twelve, in this string of twelve, they all are post-exilic prophets. In other words, the first nine come before all of the Jewish people went into Babylonian exile, pre-exilic. And then the last three are all written after they return from the exile. That would be Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And that's going to be important for our studies this fall. Because once we get beyond Zephaniah, those last three books are all post-Babylonian exile. So just kind of keep that in mind. Zephaniah was not personally the last of the pre-exilic prophets, but his writing, his prophecy is placed here at the end. Habakkuk came after him time-wise, but Zephaniah's book is placed at the last. Why is that? It may have something to do with the fact that Zephaniah comes off like the hammer in the last nail in the coffin of the kingdom of David. For since the Babylonian exile, no king of David's line has ruled from David's throne in Jerusalem. And Zephaniah seems to hammer that home. You could say that for a king to rule again in Jerusalem, it would would take a miracle. It would almost take someone rising from the dead. And Jesus said in Revelation 1.17, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. There was a miracle. One did rise from the dead. And he will be king in Jerusalem. But before that happens, we read about an event so startling, so globally shattering then the Lord has to repeat it several times, I think, for us really to buy in, to understand it. It is the day of the Lord. And that is the primary message of the book of Zephaniah. Well, wait, Rick, we did that in Joel, didn't we? Yes, we did. Zephaniah comes right back around, and he is preaching the same thing. In fact, more even than Joel did. That's the theme of the book. Actually, the book divides itself into three parts. You can can parcel it out like this. The declaration of the Lord is in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. It opens with this grand declaration. We'll look at that this morning. Then the bulk of the prophecy is the day of the Lord, verse 7 of chapter 1, all the way through verse 8 of chapter 3. The day of the Lord. And then it ends gloriously with what I would just call the daughter of Zion, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So the declaration of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the daughter of Zion. If you want to think in terms of an outline for this little book. Like so many of the minor prophets, the hope of the kingdom is the close of the book. So it's a great way to end. But let's take a closer look. Verse 1, chapter 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah. This would be a great rap. (laughs) Son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now, he's going to give us a definite time frame here. I'll come back to that in just a second. But Zephaniah is strange among all of the prophets. He does something none of them do. He traces his ancestry back four generations. 
We don't get this with anybody else. He traces it all the way back to great-great-grandpa Hezekiah. Hezekiah. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us he was royalty. It tells us that Zephaniah the prophet would have been in line at some level in the royal family, in the line of Judah, following his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah. Why is that important? Well, it may help us a little bit to understand Zephaniah's name. Zephaniah's name, it comes from two Hebrew words, Saphon, Yah. Yah for Yahweh, as so many of the prophets have the name of God embedded in their own name. Saphon, Yah. What is Saphon? It means hidden. Zephaniah's name means the hidden of the Lord or the Lord will hide. The Lord will hide. Why would you name your child that? When I was born, many of you know this, I was born with a cleft lip and cleft palate. So, no upper lip, and my palate opened all the way to the back of my mouth, and it was pretty severe. I have one of the more severe cases, this is back in 1964, so it was a little while ago, (laughs) a long while ago. But thankfully, I had good doctors. I think I've shared a while ago that my brother, when he first saw me, Ron was 15 months old when he first saw me, and the first thing my brother said when he saw little baby brother Rick was, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And he hasn't let me forget it. (laughs) Why would you name your child the Lord will hide? Was there something wrong with Zephaniah when he was born? Did did his family look at him and go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we need to hide this one away. We need to keep this one. Remember, he was four generations down from Hezekiah. Perhaps, and it's believed by many, he was kept hidden. Because he himself was royalty, he was Hezekiah's heir, and his folks hid him away from brutal king Manasseh. Now, placing things in history, put on your little history caps here, understand that King Manasseh, who had a son named Ammon, and after Manasseh had died and after Ammon was gone, then Josiah came on the scene. And that is the time during the reign of Josiah that Zephaniah the prophet prophesied. So he grew up in the reign of Manasseh, who was the most evil, the most wicked, the most brutal king in the line of the kings in Judah. 2 Kings 21 verse 16 says, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, Manasseh burned his own sons in the fire. The fires of Milcom or Molech. Manasseh was a murderous, bloody, awful king. Who, by the way, if you want to do a little study of his life, has a remarkable end because he repents of the whole thing. But during his reign, his wickedness is pervasive. So here comes Zephaniah in line from Hezekiah. Manasseh is killing off everybody, perhaps even those who would be a threat to his royal throne. And Zephaniah is born and his parents say, the Lord will hide. We've got to keep this kid out of the sight of the king. That may be it. Ironically, even the book of Zephaniah itself seems to be hidden away, tucked away in Scripture. Let me just ask a show of hands here. How many of you have studied through Zephaniah? I got one. (laughs) How many of you even know, before coming in this morning, what the context or the idea was in Zephaniah? Okay, uh, two or three more, because you knew this is where we were going and you studied ahead, right? (laughs) J. Vernon McGee suggests that the reason why so few have studied Zephaniah is because it is so hard to take. That this is not the kind of book Christians like to sit and read and ponder and have for morning devotion. The day of the Lord! A day of wrath and trouble and distress and destruction and desolation. Hallelujah! That will start your day off, right? (laughs) So few have even come to this little book. I I am so thankful. I can't tell you. Every day I am thankful to the Lord that He started us on a course of teaching and reading through the Scriptures. Because I'm seeing stuff I never would have seen. And we're talking about things we never would have talked about. And we need to. God put it here. There's a reason. Now, J. Vernon McGee says Zephaniah is a Texas tornado. 
a Florida hurricane, a Mississippi River flood, a California earthquake, a Minnesota snowstorm, and a Hawaiian volcanic eruption all rolled into one. By the way, have you noticed that Kilauea is going off again in Hawaii? But verse 1 places this ministry, this tough, heavy, day of the Lord preaching ministry of Zephaniah in Josiah's reign. When did Josiah reign? From 640 to 609 B.C. We know that. So you can place the writing of this book somewhere between 640 and 609. Zephaniah therefore prophesied alongside one of the major prophets, Jeremiah. In fact, Zephaniah is kind of to Jeremiah what um, Micah was to Isaiah. A minor prophet with a very similar message to a major prophet who is delivering much of what the Lord had to say. And no doubt these two knew each other. No doubt they prophesied together. Probably comforted each other from time to time. But I believe this prophecy, 640 to 609, was probably closer to the 609 side of things, closer to the end of the reign of Josiah. There's there's debate about that. Some say it came early before Josiah's reforms, and others say it came late after the fact. I lean toward that, and I'll tell you why. Something happened in the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was 25 years old when something happened that lit a fire in this young king's heart. 2 Kings 22 tells the story. The year was 622 B.C. 25-year-old Josiah sent his aide, his scribe Shaphan, over to the high priest Hilkiah at the temple. He said, I want you to gather the money that's been collected in the temple treasury. We need to refurbish the temple. We need to clean it up. We need to get it running again. It was in disrepair as it happened a number of times across the line of the kings. And Josiah, 25 years old, and he looks and he has an eye for this. He probably was going to connect for several months and it really turned him around. You know, he saw this. (laughs) And he said, we need to restore the temple. So Hilkiah goes and starts gathering up and dusting off and discovers a book. An old scroll. And he unrolls it and begins to read it and sees what it is. And he hands it to Shaphan and he says, we have found a scroll of the book of the law. Well, Shaphan takes it back to Josiah. Josiah begins to read it, and it blows his mind. We're told that he is weeping. We're told that he tears his clothes, that he is he's just mourning over the fact that all of this wonder, all the splendor of the Word of God had been so neglected for so long. A fire sprang up in the heart of King Josiah. And we read about that in 2 Kings 23. I'll just read it to you. The king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read aloud in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. He read the Old Testament to him. He went through Genesis through Deuteronomy, Torah law, read the whole thing in the hearing of the people. Which, by the way, was the requirement the Lord had for the king when they came into the land. He said every king, Deuteronomy, every king needs to sit down and copy out for himself a copy of the law and then read it before the people. That was charge number one for the kings and most of them didn't even do it. Josiah did. He reads it in their hearing. The king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord. To walk after the Lord, to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart, with all His soul, to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. Down in verse 24 of Second Kings 23, it says, Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and all the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king, listen to this, there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses nor did any like him arise after him. Wow. What a moniker of faithfulness. What an astounding... I would love to have something like that written about me. Before him there was no one like him. There was no one like him afterwards. That was Josiah. 
However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of His great wrath with which His anger burned against Judah. Because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him, the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, My name shall be there. Why didn't the Lord turn from His wrath? If Josiah was such a remarkable king, like David before him, and some could even argue greater than David in terms of his faithfulness to the Lord, why didn't the Lord turn from His wrath? Revival explodes under Josiah. And the Lord says, Yet I will not stay my hand of judgment. Why? Because the revival cooled. Because it didn't last. With Josiah at the helm, things flamed up on the surface, but it didn't take in the hearts of the people. It was superficial. It was temporary. And that can happen even when the word of the Lord is read. What are you talking about, Rick? James says, James 1.21, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That apparently in Jerusalem on that day, all the people heard the reading of the law and they said, okay, good, we've heard it, we're good to go. But no change was wrought in their hearts. Josiah was changed. Why? Because the word got in. Because it got planted deep. It took root. It sprouted. It bore fruit. That's what the word does for those who do it as opposed to those who just hear it. But that's the backdrop of Zephaniah. That's the land in which he prophesied, the time in which he began to bring the word of the Lord. And I believe, as I said before, that that Zephaniah brought it toward the end of Josiah's reign because the people were not truly repentant. Right before Habakkuk, right before the coming of Babylon, Zephaniah preaches his word of prophecy and he prophesies the day of the Lord. Obadiah first coined the phrase. You might recall that back in around 840. Joel and Amos followed suit along with Isaiah and Jeremiah. They all talked about the day of the Lord. But Zephaniah names it more times than all of the others. Now something else I want to share with you before we go on. These guys, including Zephaniah, were all pre-exilic. All before. What's interesting is that after the Babylonian exile, the prophets keep talking about the day of the Lord. They didn't stop when the exile took place. They didn't stop after the destruction and the annihilation and the brutality of Babylon. They came back from Babylon, back into the land, and started talking about the day of the Lord again. And a stunning realization must have hit the people of Israel. That wasn't it. That wasn't it. From exile in Babylon... Ezekiel looked to the future. He said in Ezekiel 30, verse 3, The day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Not the nation singular, but all the nations. 20 to 40 years after the Jews came back into the land, Zechariah the prophet comes on the scene. And in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Zechariah talks about this coming day. Now there are those who say, all right, but what about the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70? There are many people who say, they're called preterists, that's the name for the belief, that say all that was talked about in the book of Revelation happened in A.D. 70. That the day of the Lord happened in A.D. 70. That all of those things, it's history, it's past tense, it's already taken place. Not according to Jesus. Speaking of the day of the Lord... Matthew 24, 21, he said, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And I pointed out several times, that verse alone destroys preterism. Because Jesus says, a time is coming, this day of the Lord, this great tribulation he describes, is worse than anything that has ever been, nor ever will be again. Right? So you have to say that what happened in AD 70 has never been surpassed. 
and I threw out the Holocaust, which far surpasses what happened in 70 A.D. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul comes along and he says, You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. By the way, one other thing about A.D. 70, it was a destruction of Jerusalem. It was not a destruction of the nations. Paul said that day is going to come like a thief. That day is going to catch the world by surprise. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, trying to calm the nerves of some of the Thessalonians, he says... We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message, or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It hasn't come, he said. Peter said, 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Do you remember our conversation, our teaching, about the day of the Lord in the book of Joel? Do you remember that the day of the Lord begins with the tribulation, but it ends all the way at the end of the millennial kingdom? At the great throne judgment? It is one long day that is described. It is the work of the Lord, the Lord's hands directly involved in humanity. And in our study in Joel, we talked about that long day. Listen to the declaration of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. I will completely remove all from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove, remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked and I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Again, over in chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. That's a global thing. A worldwide declaration in these first couple of verses of Zephaniah's prophecy. In the late 90s of the first century, the Apostle John described the day of the Lord start to finish from Revelation chapter 6 all the way through to the end of Revelation chapter 20. And in chapter 20, verse 11, he made this statement. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. And I think that's what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter 3.10, when he talks about the earth and the elements being burned up, I think that's when it happens. Heaven and earth flee away. That at that point, all of what was before is done away with, just as the Lord says He will do. I'm going to remove all things from the face of the earth. I'll remove man, beast, birds, fish, the whole thing. I'm going to cut off. I'm going to destroy the, work, the, the earth with, with fire. But the declaration of the Lord suddenly turns more specific from global to the land of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 4. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of the earth. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. What does that mean? The idolatrous priests, the word there is Kimarim. The Kimarim spoke of the pagan priests. Okay, it's those priests who were set up who were not of the Levitical line. They were just set up by kings and leaders there in Israel to uh, work in the high places. The Kimarim. And then with the priests, that word for priests is Kohanim, which are the Levitical priests. I'm going to cut them all off. Because even the Levitical priests were sinning and wicked and going out to the high places. Verse 5, And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven. Did you read your astrology this morning? Check that. In the paper. <laughs> and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, or again, Molech. Molech was that massive iron idol, belly of fire. And they would heat that belly up and the arms would get red hot and they would take infants and put them on the arms of Molech. 
And the infant would obviously fall off of those arms and down into the belly. And that was how they sacrificed. And this was going on in God's land, in Israel. And he says, verse 6, Those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him. Here's the point. The Lord begins by talking about a global judgment and then in verse 4 He says, So, or in a like manner, I will do this to Judah and Jerusalem. What's that mean? It means that what happened to Judah in the Babylonian destruction, in the exile, was a picture of the larger global event that would happen. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, what happened to them happened as an example for us. So we can see God doing things on a smaller scale, what He's going to do on a large scale with the whole world. And that's what this prophecy is about. Yes, Zephaniah is warning the people of Judah, you are going into captivity, this is at hand. But he's also talking about the day of the Lord, which is a global judgment, of which... The, Jude- the captivity of the Jewish people was simply a picture. Well, that gets us into the prophecy. gives you a little sense of Zephaniah as a prophet. With that in mind, it's clear. Israel will again need a hiding place. Chapter 2, verse 1. Go there. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame. Nation without shame. The King James translates that, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. That's kind of faulty. Because the the desire doesn't belong to another, the verb refers to Judah. It's not that they are not desired, it's that they have no desire. The word shame in the NASB is is translated better, longing or desire. Oh, nation without longing. Oh, nation without desire. What is he saying? He's saying, you have no feeling. You're numb to the truth. You have no passion. And they're being denounced for this as being a nation that just doesn't care. They've come a long way from the sons of Korah who wrote in Psalm 84, verse 1, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. See, there's not passion in your relationship with Jesus. You've got to ask yourself the question, do I even have one? If, if, your, if your Christian life is one of going through the motions and doing the have-tos and checking the box if it's a a time-to-time kind of a religion, then you are among those. You are a nation without desire. A follower without longing. Someone who could take it or leave it. And the Lord denounces that attitude. He says in verse 2, Before the decree takes effect... The day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. God says, gather together before it's too late. Gather together all the people. Come on, get together. You know, that's what, that's what church means. To gather. Called out. Ecclesia. To be called together. And by the way, total side note here, but I absolutely believe in the larger gathering of church fellowships. I think small groups are crucial and critical for personal, intimate ministry to take place. But I will never turn my back from the idea that we need to gather in corporate fellowship and teaching and worship. That's part of the deal. People say, well, in the first century they didn't do it that way. Let's see, the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, uh, prayer. Wait, apostles, what are the four things? Fellowship. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But it says this took place. They were meeting together in the temple and in each other's homes. It's both. And the Lord says, gather, get together, and listen up. Before the coming of the day of the Lord, before the burning of my wrath, get together. Get together to do what, Lord? Verse 3, seek the Lord. Gather to seek the Lord. All you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. The hiding place. 
That word hidden is slightly different from Zephaniah's name. The, the part of his name is Zephon, which means hides. The word here is Sathar, and it's a cool word because it means secreted away. It means concealed. In other words, hidden by the Lord from the day of the Lord. What a great thought. Yes, God says, my wrath is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. I will pour out vengeance on this earth. But you know what I would love to do first? I'd love to hide you away from that. I want to secret you away. Israel, I want you to be safe and protected. This is an 11th hour plea for repentance. And I absolutely believe historically, had the people gathered, like they did with Josiah, had they regathered together and sought the Lord, that he would have pulled out those who sought the Lord and hidden them against the onslaught of Babylon. But there's a prophetic promise here for days to come. A future hiding place. A secret annex, if you will, for Israel. Revelation 12.6 tells us the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Revelation 12.14, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. Again, this is Israel we're talking about. So that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time, three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. Psalm 25 verse, 27 verse 5. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 10. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. And we did a whole kind of extensive teaching on this whole idea of entering the rock. Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, the teaching is called A Place Prepared. It's online if you want to go back and study through this. But in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 1, he calls this place in the wilderness, this this hiding place for the Jewish people, he calls it Selah. Selah, which means rock. Another word for rock would be the Greek word Petra, which is why so many Bible scholars believe that Petra in Jordan is the hiding place. That that may be where the Jewish people are concealed, protected against the work of Antichrist and Satan in the tribulation. It's a place prepared. But wherever the hiding place is, the scriptures tell us unequivocally that a saved, faithful remnant of Israel, Jewish people, who come to faith in Jesus during that tribulation, will be concealed, will be protected in the last three and a half years of tribulation. Now, are you tracking that? Does that seem to fit in in the teaching that we've been going through for several months now? Just nod if you're with... Okay, good, good. Here's the thing I want to get to this morning. The keys to that secret annex are right here. The keys that unlock the hiding place, that open the door for the people to get in are right here in Zephaniah. And it's good news for the Jewish people. And we're going to talk more about that on Wednesday night as we go through and think through the rest of this book. But this morning, it's good news for the Jew. What about the Gentile? Let's make some application for us. This was, remember, a pre-exilic offer of both immediate, if they would take him up on it, and future hiding, a hiding place. In the same way... We have here this morning, we still have, at least as of today, a pre-tribulation offer. An offer by God, a sweet promise of hiddenness. A promise of our hiding place, of being secreted away, of being concealed during that time of tribulation, of being caught up safely with Jesus before the day of the Lord. I've had conversations with people who, who doubt this or question it or think, oh, we're not going to go before. It might be sometime in the middle. Or maybe it's just at the end, you know, God will come. And we're just going to have to suffer through it all. And my response, my answer, and I get more bold with this as the years go by, my answer is that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, you might want to take that perspective, but that's not what God's Word says. 
What God's Word says is there is a hiding place. There is a safe house. There is a secret annex Jesus is currently building right now up to which He will catch His people before the wrath of God hits. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 40, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And Jesus went so far as to command that we pray for our hiding place in the tribulation. In the command form, Jesus says, Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He doesn't say, you know, it would be a good idea to think about that. He says, do it. Followers of mine, you pray that you are among those who will stand before the Son of Man. Those who are caught up, those who escape all these things. Jesus tells us who it is that's building that annex right now. John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you Bible students know the journey there, once all things are ready, will be instantaneous. Paul calls it in the twinkle of an eye. It's not even a blink. It's a twinkle. You know how fast a twinkle is? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. In a twinkle. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul, again, talking about the rapture, the catching up, the harpazo in the Greek, of the church. And the Left Behind movie is about to come out starring Nicolas Cage, who gets left behind in the movie. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. Watch and see. Not, not what happens with the movie or how Hollywood does it. Watch and see the response of people in the world. You're going to see one of two responses. You're going to see people, well, maybe three responses. Okay, it could be four. No, three responses. You're going to see people watching that movie who are going to walk out of there going, I need Jesus. If this is real, if this is true, I need Jesus. You're going to have people, believers, walking out of there going, Thank you, Lord, for the promise. And you're going to have another group of people walking out of there going, well, that was a fiction. I think you're going to see a rise of rebellion and mockery at the same time as faith is rising among those who trust in the Lord Jesus. It's a legitimate story, gang. It's not just a story. It's a representation of what the Bible calls truth. It's a mystery. In the Old Testament, concealed. In the New Testament, revealed. But I wonder, I've been looking at these things for a while now. I wonder if there aren't some hints in the Older Testament as to being caught up into this secret place. Like Genesis 5.24, Enoch. That wonderful story of Enoch, the first man raptured. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's the rapture. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that they just kept going. (laughs) He's with God. He was pleasing to the Lord, so the Lord took him home. Rather than, you know, probably a long day, they're out walking together, out far from Enoch's home, and God says, why don't you just come on home with me? Sounds good, and off they went. (laughs) So Enoch's a picture of that, a, a marvelous picture of that. And Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20, I still think about this one. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. Now that obviously speaks clearly to the people of Israel, that remnant of faithful Jews saved in the tribulation who have to be protected, who run to a hiding place, a place in the wilderness, a place prepared three and a half years into the tribulation. But I wonder, I wonder if the, if the Lord is not winking a bit at the church. Come, my people. Got a place prepared for you. Close the doors behind you. 
Won't you hear with me while indignation runs its course? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, that's another one. We run across here in the Hebrew Scriptures, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. I don't doubt that's a promise for Israel. But I wonder if it might also be a promise for the church. A secondary promise, a hint to those who are willing to read it and understand the context. I'm not stealing the promises from Israel at all. They are for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. And so there is, gang, a promise of hiddenness with the Lord Jesus against all these things that are going to happen on the earth for all who have believed. And your hiddenness can begin right now. Even before the church is caught up, even before we go home to be with the Lord, you can be hidden today. Colossians 3 verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Your true self, your spiritual nature, your safe self will be revealed just as Jesus is revealed. Right now, I don't look really saved. Unless I got my Bible with me. That helps. You know? If I'm walking down the street, you can't tell a saved person from an unsaved person, except for perhaps the fruit of their works, what they do, how they act. But even then, unsaved people can be real nice. Unsaved people can have good fruit in their lives. Unsaved people can do good things. And saved people can be awfully stinky. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, but the day is coming when your life, hid with Christ in God, will be revealed for what it really is, a saved, redeemed, washed, cleansed follower of Jesus. I want to end with this. Do we have something we can do? Because we always like to have something to do, right? Is there something I can do to assure my place, my, my place in the annex? You know, with Anne Frank, when, when she and her family went to their annex, they had been building it on the back of Otto Frank, her father, his, his uh, workshop, his warehouse, hiding it back there, secretly building it for months, and finally, they weren't even going to go until, uh, until, I guess, August. They went in July. They left their house early in the morning. They wore several layers of clothes because they couldn't be seen in the streets carrying suitcases. They went one at a time, seemingly different directions, all meeting up at Otto Frank's warehouse where they entered into that secret annex. They would live there two years and two months before an anonymous tip got them captured by the Nazis. But the four of them, the Frank family, were in there. And then more came as well. There ended up being eight of them all together in that secret annex. They prepared for it. They were ready for it. And they went when the time was right, when they needed to go. But is there something we can do to prepare, to be ready, to assure our place? That's a question I get a lot. I just want to know for certain that I'm part of that group that's going to be caught up. Alright then, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. The word ordinances is judgments. You have lived under His judgments. You have carried out His judgments. How do I carry out His judgments? Believe in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Because Jesus took all of His judgments on Himself at the cross. you got two ways to live. He can take your judgments or you can bear your judgments. But if you seek the Lord, you look to Jesus, He takes those judgments from you. It begins and it ends right there. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, Jesus said. Matthew 16.25 But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Seek the Lord. It's not seek a career. It's not seek that day of retirement. Seek the Lord above all other things. Secondly, seek righteousness. Seek righteousness. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. I want to know the moment Jesus calls me home, I want to be absolutely ready. I don't want to be ashamed of what I was doing when He called me. 
What if I'm in the shower? Okay, that's a different thing. (laughs) I don't want to be caught when I'm being caught up. I don't want to be pulled out of the theater watching a movie that Jesus would not join me to watch. I don't want to be torn out of my romance novel that I shouldn't have been reading. I don't want to be pulled out of the immediacy of a, of a TV show that, that, that shouldn't be entering my eyes. You see how John says in 1 John 3, if we have our hope in His calling home, it purifies us? Because I start to realize, I, I, don't, I want to have confidence. The moment I realize, in that twinkling of an eye, the moment I realize I'm being caught up, I want to be like, yes! Woo! I can't even do that because my feet won't be on the ground. <laughs> Good to go, Lord. Confident. Not going, oh man, I'm going to stand at the back of the group when I get to the clouds because this is not good. What I was doing, what I was in the middle of, seek righteousness. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. And John goes on, listen closely, 1 John 2.29, if you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Our lives are to be about the practice. We're not perfect. I understand that. I mess up all the time. But our lives are to be about the practice of righteousness. And I wonder if we Christians have confused righteousness with legalism. Well, I don't want to be legalistic. They're two separate things. Pursuing goodness and holiness and rightness before the Lord is a good thing. Legalism is doing it because you think you're saving yourself, you think you're proving yourself, you think you've got a handle on it. That's legalism. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about pursuing those things that, that God loves, that makes Him pleased. Have Christians confuse holiness for intolerance? Boy, well, can't be a bigot. Man, be holy because He is holy. And if something is disgusting to God, it's disgusting to me. If you have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, in which He took your place on the cross, then live by faith. Practice righteousness. Let us be a people who are about doing the right thing, our minds right before the Lord, because the righteous will live by faith. Amen. And therein lies the proof that you're born again. If you're among those who practice righteousness, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and finally, seek humility. And humility is required because while we know the righteous will live by faith, we also know, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Said this Wednesday night, you cannot be proud and walk with the Lord. You cannot be proud and be saved. It doesn't work. Pride denies a person the need of Jesus. The proud won't seek Him because their thinking isn't right. Spurgeon once wrote, As for me, I will lay down my sick soul at Christ's feet. Ensure and certain belief that He will heal me, and then I will follow Him whithersoever He goeth, in calm assurance that He will lead me to His eternal kingdom and glory. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps, maybe, you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Perhaps, we're talking about confidence here, right? We're talking about knowing, and suddenly he says, maybe you'll be hidden. I don't know if I like that. Well, I know that sounds uncertain, but the word perhaps, it's a great word in the Hebrew, ulai. Let's try saying that with me. Ulai. Kazuntite. It's it's not uncertainty. The word in the Hebrew is not uncertain and uncertain perhaps. It's a positive expectation of something good. Let me put it to you this way. It's like me looking at my kids as I did yesterday and saying, maybe if you're good, we'll go get donuts. Now you all know me well enough to know that if I'm saying we're going to go get donuts, we're going to go get donuts. Okay? And I already knew I'm taking them to the donut master. We're going down. I know this is going to happen. And when I said that yesterday morning to Naomi, maybe, maybe we'll go get donuts later today. 
If you guys are really good. Well, she's working hard to be good all day long, but I know we're going. (laughs) It's a done deal. What do you know about the nature of Jesus Christ? Is He good for His promises? Yes. Can you count on that? Yes. Well then, perhaps, you will be hidden. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Last thing. Zephaniah's name. Zephan, the Hebrew word for hidden. Yah, Yahweh. The Lord hides. But the word Zephon in the Hebrew also has another meaning that applies to his people. That word is treasured. The Lord treasures. The Bible tells us in Psalm 83 verse 1, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones, your Zephon. And there's your assurance. You are treasured by the Lord. So seek the Lord. And seek righteousness. And seek humility. Knowing that you are treasured by Him. After all, He paid the highest price for you. Lord, thank You. Thank You for paying that price. Thank You for Your grace, Your love, Your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that 2,840 years ago, you first had Obadiah use the phrase, Day of the Lord. There's not a person on the planet who has any right to say, Why didn't you warn us? When for coming up on 3,000 years, you have been calling this out. You've been calling us to gather and seek you. Calling us to seek righteousness and humility. Calling us to come back and be with you and to walk with you and to live for you. And I pray that call goes out clearly from this barn this morning. Out in our lives, out in our relationships, out in our contacts. For as we seek the Lord, we know that day is coming when we shall see the Lord Jesus. And we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Father, bless your people with faith, I pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.